here's a question. How would you explain to your 15-year-old self that, like, there's a movie about Han Solo in theaters, all about Han Solo, and you haven't bothered to watch it, but you talk about the Andy Griffith show every single day? I think, I honestly think 15-year-old me would be like, yeah, that's about right. That seems like where we'd, like, but that seems like where we'd end up. Like, I think he'd be he'd be like oh man there's a han solo movie and he'd be like oh no 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 one's really that that jazzed about it be like what why and be like because it's it's everywhere because they gave us what we wanted so much that we don't know what we want anymore uh that would be really the thing he'd be bummed out by there was a live action justice league movie no you you still haven't seen it 15 year old marty but you know what everybody you know loves frazier (laughs) <laughs> yeah Frasier comes back in a, a big way is there big a way, way that you can bet on that uh back to the future 2 style can you <laughs> can you gamble on Frasier making a hard comeback because that stock's about to soar hey everybody welcome to breaking mayberry if you've never listened to the show before this is not a good episode to start on or maybe it's the best one we're doing something slightly different this time. Uh, this is our decompression episode. Uh, we, this is so we're not gonna review a episode of Andy Griffith this time. So if you're just here to listen to Dan and I recap episodes and yell "manhunt" over and over again, maybe skip this one. I mean, uh, I'd say this is I, I this is a pretty good uh, midpoint review. Like if you're, I, this could be a good jumping in point just because. In addition to reviewing our mental health about watching this show, also summarize, like, what we've learned so far. Yeah, that's what this is. This is the What We've Learned episode. Uh, And I think we should do this maybe twice a season. Like, right now we're in the midpoint, a little bit more than halfway through uh, season one of The Andy Griffith Show. Uh, So it seemed like a good time to, like, take a step back and kind of recap. Because there was a point to this at one point when we decided to come up with this. Uh, We were trying to, like assess a lot of the mythos of this show and kind of how it became so influential that like people base their politics around this show and uh, how it's just so crucial to an entire generation of Americans that internalize this Uh, because like no other show has people like writing songs about it and being like using it as justification for political maneuvers i think one thing that really makes this show stand out in my consciousness is i have never watched a tv show before seen a thing happen on it and say oh my god the lesson that this show just taught definitely got at least one person killed there is one of what the one i don't know man dude general hospital had a woman marry her rapist so Ooh, okay that's up there i was thinking the one we're gonna i think circle back to next week uh andy the marriage counselor has 100 percent resulted in a uh, in a fatality uh, we'll, we'll get into this when we do that episode and we'll actually have a like relationship counselor on hand for it but that i think 
is more of a art imitating life than life imitating art kind of thing. Uh, because all that that episode was doing was reflecting pretty much the ideals of like domestic violence and uh, feuding couples at the time. The term domestic violence didn't even enter the lexicon until the late 80s, early 90s. I mean, the the thing is, uh, with a lot of stuff in this show, it's not, like, the, the Andy Griffith show is a kid's show, really. Like, You is... know what? You know what? I'm going to disagree with you on that. Really? Because I found out, let's, let's clarify. Um, when Dan and I started this, we pretty much intentionally didn't do any research on this show. Uh, Wanted to come in of, cold. Yeah. And since then, I've looked some stuff up. The Andy Griffith show aired Monday nights at 9.30. It was a late time slot. It was a time really? when the kids had gone to bed. Uh, and that also might, might be how David Adler gets his horny episodes in, because they were allowed to be slightly more suggestive at the 9.30 time slot. Yeah, maybe. Oh, I was thinking that this was on, like, at 5, like, the entire family would, like, sit down and, like, like nuzzle together after a long day of work and watch the Andy Griffith show, and then Andy Griffith would be like, it's okay to execute people. Like... I was thinking this was, like, the equivalent of, like, if Mr. Rogers, like, put on his cardigan and then was, like, you know, the age of consent is bullshit. Like. No, no, this is, it was, it aired Mondays at 9.30. However, um, around the third or fourth season, it went into syndication. And so the mm-hmm. reruns of these early episodes that we're running would run earlier in the day. So you're halfway right. right. So kids would see these these early episodes at like five, and then Mondays at nine thirty would be new episodes. And they actually like renamed it Andy of Mayberry when it was in reruns, and then the Andy Griffith Show came on Mondays at nine thirty. The other thing I found, and this I think helps contribute to its presence, its popularity, because uh, I was thinking about how did this show become so big, and the answer is that it, there were three channels, and no matter how popular any television show is right now, there's just so many things you can watch. But there were three channels in 1961. And I went and looked up what it was going up against, what else was in these time slots, and basically nothing. Like, there was no show that was notable at this time. So basically, if it was Monday night at 9.30, you were watching the Andy Griffith show, or you weren't watching television. Uh, (laughs) The only time that changed is in the last two years of the Andy Griffith show's run, when it was going up against Peyton Place, which TV history was like the very first real successful uh, serial kind of soap opera that was in prime time. But that was only the last two, and it did not hurt the Andy Griffith Show uh, popularity at all. You have to really, the, the ratings for this show are ridiculous. It never, ever finished lower than seventh in the Nielsen ratings, ever, in its entire run. The last two years, it was number one consistently. This was the show of America. I was doing some research and I was like looking around at like other stuff the writers had done. There was such dreck on during this time period that I would be like, look like, oh, it, uh, he wrote this show, Carol's Place. What's that about? And it'd be like, like the Wikipedia entry would basically be like, it's it's a bullshit show about nothing. It was just stupid. Some people were on it. Go to a different Wikipedia page immediately. Like there yeah, were like- just so many shows that were nothing. So, yeah, I mean, there, there were some shows that were airing in 1961. This was on at the same time as, like, the Dick Van Dyke show, which, while not being particularly popular, gave us Dick Van Dyke and Betty White. Uh, the, the Flintstones was airing at the same time. Car 54, Where Are You? There's a, you know, My Three Sons. There are a few things that, like, 
lasted, but it's just it's such a huge jump when you go from like 1961 TV shows to 1967 or 1968 TV shows. What changed? Because in 1968, we're getting stuff like The Mod Squad, Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, stuff that was like wanted to touch upon political ideals and uh, kind of poke fun at the outside world, Smothers Brothers kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas the Andy Griffith show very, very intentionally did not do that. Uh, We kept saying earlier on that we were saying like, Andy has to deal with the concept of race at some point in time. It is the 60s. No, it does not. It absolutely does not have to do that. We will, in, in the entire run of this show, we will see one black character have a speaking line. Like, so totally. One one thing I've, like, I'm, I'm, I'm on to season two now in my personal watching, and uh, it is sort of uh, becoming woke very, very gradually. And it is like not like woke by by 1960s standards. Uh, like you can sort of see it becoming a show that Bill Bill O'Reilly would hate to uh, return back to our original premise. And it is it, it's kind of really interesting to watch because it's not like it's not like a character on the Andy Griffith show is becoming aware of of gender equality or, or economic inequality. It's the show is becoming aware of these things. So it's almost like watching a, an AI gain sentience. I think one of the problems I've had keeping my expectations tempered with this is this is the Andy Griffith show, right? <laughs> this is a huge thing. People like lots of people love parks and rec, but no one is having Pawnee days. There is no like celebration of Pawnee in Indiana. Part of that is because like Mayberry is based on a real place that you can actually go to. It's Mount Airy, North Carolina. You can actually mm-hmm. go there. Um, but, and part of that is also because like, no matter how many people like Parks and Rec, like it will never. No TV show can dominate the airwaves the way the Andy Griffith did because there's just so much competition these days. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been trying to temper my expectations by reminding myself that the sh- the episodes that you and I are watching right now, season one, it's not the Andy Griffith show yet. It hasn't become that thing yet. It will in in time. Lots of TV shows take a season or two to find their voice. So mm-hmm. I'm when we're watching these shows, I'm judging it by like the influence that it's had in the 50 years prior. But I'm trying to keep in mind that in 1961, when you were watching it, no one knew how big this thing was going to get. It was just, hey, here's this silly dude, Andy. And this is what we're going to watch because it's Monday night and there's no other options. So I'm trying to keep that in mind. But also it's like, you know what? We had some questions for each other right yeah yeah do you want to start those i mean you had a pretty good one that you pitched of do you like the andy griffith show yeah question one do you like the andy griffith show dan um so it yes i think i like the andy griffith show i i was actually like before we did this like i i like went on a long walk and thought about it i do like the Andy Griffith show, but I don't like it for the reasons the Andy Griffith show wants me to like the Andy Griffith show. Like, I like that that I like that Aunt B is the character who who screams at Andy. I like that there's this implication that Opie is just like a psychopath on the schoolyard, uh, who is like breaking kids' nose and robbing them and just no one seems to care. I like that Don Knotts is inexplicably changing girlfriends every 30 seconds. Like, it, it, it almost defies 
the the concept of good or bad for uh, artistic expression because this is almost like it's it's so outdated that it doesn't qualify for for our current like 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 metric like they I can't say whether or not they were telling a good or a bad story because they were barely telling stories. Yeah, I find it interesting for like a television history development perspective. Like one of the things we've been doing is comparing this to other more modern comedies. We compared it to Seinfeld. We compared it to King of the Hill, uh, Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, and kind of seeing that influence. And so it's really interesting to watch from that point of view. Like, seeing how some of the things... It's it's like when... You, I had a friend who watched Casablanca for the first time, <laughs> and they realized that all these tropes that they've seen all their life uh, came from this spot. And uh, so it, it's like seeing this stuff as it develops. Um, like, questioning whether or not I actually like this. I think you and I are both on the scale where right now I'm like, I like it. I like it with, like, a hint of detached irony. And I don't like liking things with detached irony. I would like to actually love it. I want the Andy Griffith show to get me to a point where I unironically fully like love this show. And it hasn't gotten me there yet. I feel like I'm almost in like a bad relationship with the Andy Griffith show just because this show makes me so angry so many times a month. But I still keep coming back to it. Like, yeah, you and got... I—we've we've locked ourselves into watching eight seasons of a show we don't like. So we're like Ellie. We're like Ellie with Andy Griffith himself, where we're just like, like once a week, Andy Griffith shows up and is a huge dick to us and pisses us off. But we keep coming back for reasons we don't totally understand. Yeah, but she leaves the show after season one. We can't do that. Yes, and. The... Oh god. And you know what she leaves just as he kind of gets his shit together. Uh no, the Ellie departure is uh there is fans of the show have built up an alternate like mythology around her leaving that is fascinating because it is extremely critical of Mayberry's bullshit. But uh yeah, like I do you do you like it? Like do you would you say that you like it or you're I, waiting to like that's it? What I say, I, I like it. That's what I, that I was gonna say. I like it at like arm's length. I like it a little bit, and I'm trying to. Today's Father's Day, so I think many of you relate to this. I like it, but I want <laughs> it to like let me love it. Let me yeah. love you. Let us in the Andy Griffith show. <laughs> like. Well, not let us in. Stop doing crazy bullshit, The Andy Griffith Show. Let me love you. Put put handcuffed Don Knotts to the radiator so that I can so that I can really like you and he'll just stop doing crazy horse shit every episode. So that was my question. What's your first question? Let's see. Should I start with a simple one or a uh a more complex one? Actually, you know what? Let's 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 jump right into it. So, on this show, we've sort of talked a lot about like evil like we we've talked about like like both jokingly and not jokingly like we've talked about characters that we think are the devil we've talked about like the evil of barney fife and like what he represents we've and we've talked about like ideas that this show has has put forward and normalized that are evil and i I think the question is two-pronged of do you think this is like sort of like an evil show um and 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 the one after that is like do you think like the all the all the stuff we've seen all like the um 
the malevolence that that sort of like tends to just happen in the show do you think there's like a root of it do you think there's like one original sin within mayberry oh i like this question um yeah i've got an answer for the first one and while i'm talking maybe i'll come up with my answer for the second one do i think that the show is evil do you know how during the bush years the west wing which is another show that's considered one of the greatest shows of television and it's a fine show on its own but the west wing will always lose points because it was an opportunity for liberals democrats mostly rich uh liberals to like disappear thursdays at eight we can pretend that bush isn't the president and we can just pretend that everything makes sense uh as kind of our like little fantasy world and for that reason like even though the west wing is a very good show one of the best i will always consider that a little like disingenuous for the same purposes the andy griffith show was and by the way i found a today show interview where andy confesses and says yeah it was set in the 60s but we wanted to make it feel like the 30s so we were dead on with that yeah so we yeah. like that was intentional we were completely right so hell yeah at, at the time of the 60s in this like total time of social upheaval and it's not like television shows were leaning away from it like there was an episode of the defenders that was all about abortion rights and maybe I'm being unfair comparing, like, a courtroom drama to a comedy. But you know, the point is, like, no one was shying away from this. But the Andy Griffith show intentionally <laughs> made itself a place where, like, if you wanted... My joke has been, key number one to enjoying the Andy Griffith show is be white. And yeah. that's what it made itself for. It was, like, you could pretend that there was, like, this little spot where everything still felt like the 30s. You could escape Mondays at 9.30 into Mayberry and ignore all the social upheaval. I mean, look, the first time we see Andy Griffith on uh, the other show, the Danny Thomas show, that's February of 1960, and he's in North Carolina. If you go to actual North Carolina in February of 1960, you have lunchroom counter-protests. Like, that's what's happening. So I don't think it's evil per se. It's not an evil program, but I do think it's somewhat insidious that it designed itself to be a show where you could pretend that all these social changes weren't happening uh, and there's a land where, like, black people are seen but not heard and, even, in fact, very rarely seen. So I don't think that the show is evil. I think that it was just, like, the idea behind it, uh, while maybe not intentionally uh, evil, is slightly misguided, especially when you see it today. Like, it's definitely weird today to see a show where... Half of the jokes are, ha police regularly abuse their power, and that's fine. Uh, so, Do you think this was conscious or unconscious, though? Do you think, like, someone was sitting in a writer's room and, like, and, and, and like laid out a bunch of points? They were, like, pre-racial America. Uh, well, I mean, they, they consciously made it feel like the 30s, and I think you, can, you can't consciously make something feel like the 30s without doing that. So, I think it develops into that, and... Eventually, like, when we see in the third or fourth season when it starts to get good, I suppose, like, it, it still tries to tell moral, like, almost like Aesop's fables or, like, Bible stories, just generic moral lessons that you can, like, apply to general life. Uh, and I guess that's good, but it does nothing, like... So, I don't know. Some people view television as escapist, and I guess that's true. Uh, but if this is pure escapism and you're going to defend it as pure escapism, don't use this television program as justification for your political beliefs. 
Like, I mean, it's yeah. it's escapism for the worst possible instinct. Like, it is escapism for for people who don't want to confront important good realities. It it was it was it was it was really escapism for people who want to pretend like MLK never happened. Uh, you know, Ron Howard tweeted the other day at Real Ron Howard. Uh, we made fun of it a little bit on the uh, Breaking Mayberry Twitter page. He tweeted something like, "Hey, MAGA heads, can you honestly tell me what time America was great? What exactly is the again in Make America Great Again?" And I was just like, "Ron, you were on the show." Yeah. <laughs> Their version like, of, of what America is great is the, like, it's the candy you sold them when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, like, he's he's seen it. He's He was what these people were hearkening back to. They all want to be Opie again. Like, it is sort of like, like, the Andy Griffith show is the womb they wish to return to. Like, this safe place where there was no real crime and no racial diversity and... Uh, and the only conflicts that they had to deal with were emotional. Uh, like it's it's really it's it's escapism, but it's escapism really designed for the most regressive possible instincts. Yeah, so that, that's that's okay. my answer, and I think you have you given yours. Yeah, you yeah, know, right, yeah, that was a good answer. You went on a good fucking monologue with that. Um, do you wanna do you wanna uh, yeah, yeah uh, do one? Sure. So. Dan, has watching these shows changed the way you think about um, a group of people? We could, we could say, like, a demographic by age, or we could say, uh, like, the South, like, a group of, like, rural... Uh, has it changed how you think about the people that this show is very, very important to? I'll remind you that you and I... Remind the listeners, you and I are definitely Yankees. Like, yeah. we are... You know, together we are from Boston and Portland, Oregon. Two places that, you know, definitely also have their share of racial tensions, but we pretend that they don't. Um, and, but we are... Boston's abs- media campaign against their racism has been incredible. They, uh, they've managed to really paper over our race riots in the 80s. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, well, Oregon wants you to forget that, like, black people weren't allowed to live in Oregon until, like, 1920. Um... Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so, but you and I are definitely the Yankees. We're the coastal elites. We haven't had anybody on this show that's from the South or, like, has real deep ties to this show. Uh, that'll change when we do the Christmas Creeps episode because Joe is from Greensboro, North Carolina. Uh, so has this changed the way you picture or think about, well, either baby boomers or Southerners or anybody who, like, this show is super deep and crucial to their identity for i don't i don't know if i think i understand the south more just because i think i think this like this show is so detached from the realities of the south just the south the the thing that makes the south good is its messiness and it's the i think the south is 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 a fan is, is a good place and when it's a good place it's because it embraces sort of its it its own ugliness in a lot of ways. Like I compare it to sort of Southern Bastards, the comic series, uh, fantastic comic series, and um, uh, some of the stuff that Anthony Bourdain has done, where it's just sort of, or the works of Drive By Truckers. 
yeah like like the south is an ugly messy chaotic brutal place uh and there's a, a of course a lot of fucking horrible bullshit that happens as a result of that but i think the best parts of the south are also because of it and this show is a complete fictionalization in that like it portrays the south as this clean safe uh nothing matters fairyland and it's not that so i i don't think i can really learn anything about the south from this except maybe this is what they wanted to be uh and maybe from that just this show doesn't understand the south or maybe southerners don't understand or southerners in this particular setting don't understand themselves i think i've got a way better understanding of baby boomers from this yeah just because basically asking two questions there so go on. yeah i think baby boomers i i i think i've got a, a better handle on because i think sort of millennials have been trying to figure out millennials and gen xers before us have been trying to figure out like what is driving baby boomers uh and how they turned out this way and we've always sort of attributed it to just sort of population size. They're such a big generation that whatever they've wanted, they've all wanted at the same time in massive numbers, so they're going to get it. And I think sort of it's been a very, like, combative way to view them, and sort of it hasn't really gotten us inside their minds a lot. And I think the Andy Griffith show sort of draws a much more effective line between world war ii and why baby boomers are the way they are uh and i think it's something that like i i think it really has we talked about the uh the labyrinth that is a baby boomer psyche and i think i've got a much better handle on it now and just that they were they were being raised in a period where everything had been a fucking nightmare for so long of just war and economic collapse and more war and just 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 nightmares just just absolute nightmares just countries being like like destroyed and cities being leveled uh and they were they were born in this period where it looked like everything was going to be okay for once and their parents just wanted everything to be okay forever and their parents were just telling them everything's going to be okay everything is going to be okay forever and you deserve for everything to be okay and i don't think their parents were telling them that for them they were telling it they were they were saying that to their kids for themselves like i don't think they could bear to raise kids in the world they'd been living in so they sort of overcompensated and just tried to build this sort of disney world fantasy land around their kids so these kids were raised watching if not this show sort of living in a world that was influenced by this show uh where their parents couldn't really process negativity or danger uh anymore so when you when like when when you go out into the world and a baby boomer reacts to economic inequality or gender issues or or race especially race you you can sort of see like they can't fit it into their head and it's not like necessarily due to entitlement their baseline is everything is fine there is no real conflict the only thing that matters is is the way we feel 
consider and really yeah i'm sorry yeah it, basically any any anything that they deal with is sort of a variance from that they're sort of going counter to the way that they were programmed as a collective group of children uh i think i'm, I'm out of runway for a second sure. do you want to jump in Cons- consider the joke that we saw that you and i completely missed uh in uh, alcohol and old lace they make the joke about muhammad's birthday uh and one of the characters pretending to be a muslim um and like, it was just so under the radar that you and i didn't even see it uh, because like at that time there was no fear around uh the about muslims or the muslim community it was just somebody who happened to have a religion that was like different than christianity uh everybody else is kind of like in a mixture there they didn't have this like instinct of fear and they wouldn't have that instinct of fear until you know 40 years later when all of a sudden 9-11 happens and they realize and not realize and they click a little light switch on and that that like fear instinct that you're talking about clicks in but now it's directed at a completely different and completely new group that you've been ignoring for 50 years uh it was it, it was so weird to see that scene because even when people who aren't fear-mongering about Muslims talk about Muslims in popular culture now. Like, a character will show up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine and be uh, and, and will be a Sikh, and the show sort of presents them as, like, this person's, uh, this person's a Sikh or this person's a, uh, a Muslim, and that's fine! And it's great that they're a Muslim, and, you, and don't you dare say any shit. Like, even when people are pro-Muslim in popular culture, they're, there's a med- they're immediately presented with like behind a shield like the show is ready is like defending them uh and it's it's sort of really weird to sort of see something like this on a tv show and just it's like oh hey there's a muslim they're walking on and off screen not actually a muslim in this case it was a guy that's true just, yeah wearing a head wrap and pretending to be one but he, he wasn't was, wearing a head wrap it wasn't that racist was he i know i thought he was wearing i don't want to say he, he just he just turban. has weird hair Oh, he just had weird hair? I remembered yeah. him wearing, like, it was like no. a white guy wearing a... Okay, scratch no. that. But, yeah, no, a, a guy just, like, showed up and said he was a Muslim and then walked off. And it was almost, like, really, it was it was almost, like, alien to watch, just... The reason I asked about the South, essentially, is because uh, I had... I saw that really good... There's a real good article that I'll link to in the comments or in the... Uh, by the... Uh, newsletter the bitter southerner which if you don't subscribe to you should written by a guy named gabe bullard and it the article is called the weird history of hillbilly tv uh and i fully admit that like the south is a place that i'm somewhat enamored with uh but know absolutely nothing about the reality of i've never been there Uh, my father just moved to north carolina so maybe i'll go there at some point but uh what i'm really in love with is like drive-by truckers and southern bastards and in the heat of the night and like the stuff that i've seen it was similar to i I saw a movie about a priest recently and kind of realized i don't know anything about the catholic church other than what i've seen or i don't really know anything about how detectives work uh, other than what i've seen on law and order uh so i realized that i'm kind of enamored with this but i i don't understand the reality of it and this article uh and the the bitter southerner um about hillbilly tv it talks about this weird like it's a little bit of honestly how we view history uh it starts off by pointing out that like in 1971 
uh, right before the premiere of one of the greatest television shows of all time, All in the Family, there was fucking hee-haw on television. Like, banjos and overalls and, like, hillbilly jokes. And I and I mean literally, hee-haw led into All in the Family. Uh, and there was this point where, like, suddenly shows need to be about things. There needs to be a message. It needs to deal with uh, the reality of things. So, and it talks about, like, in the 1960s, uh, there was just, like, a countrified, like, rural section, mostly on CBS, and mostly on, uh, mostly started by the Andy Griffith Show, uh, about, like, rural life, country life. And when, in 2018, rural people are clamoring and saying that they're underrepresented, that nobody hears them, that they don't have the cultural cachet to the point where you have to give fucking Roseanne a television show again, <laughs> um, you know, to represent them, quote unquote. It's really interesting that for like 10 years, there was a, like half a television network dedicated to the idea of countrified. You and I, like, I cut a little bit of our last episode where we were making fun of the, like, folk recorder, because uh, he says something like, folk music is at an all-time demand, is at an all-time high. And we were both like, what the hell are you talking about? It's 1961. No one is listening to folk music. Uh, and I cut that because apparently we just forgot that Dolly Parton and Johnny Cash exist. And Literally I... two seconds of Googling invalidated ten minutes of us bullshitting like morons. I mean, you and I definitely showed ourselves to be the, like, smart-ass... Uh, out of touch, like urban bubbled millennials that like they make us out to be. But we also weren't entirely wrong because in 1961 that wasn't a popular thing. Uh, Jolly Parton doesn't show up on the Porter Wagoner show until 1967. Uh, Johnny Cash doesn't record live at Folsom Prison until 1968. Willie Nelson shows up in 1970. In 1961, we were not completely wrong, but we weren't completely right either. And the reason I'm, I'm saying all this is because this Bitter Southerner article ends by pointing out that, like, today, the way that we think about history, the way that we think about how things are, is so screwed up. All in the Family plays on MeTV in reruns, right next to the Andy Griffith Show, right next to Hee Haw. It all kind of mashes together, and you kind of blend this stuff together in your mind. And we're so bad, at least in America, about thinking about how history worked, and figuring out exactly how much time like passes between phenomenons and events, uh, that now everything kind of merges together, and it feels like these two shows are neighbors, and you can juxtapose them. But they're not. They're set ten years completely apart, and they're completely different motives. Um, so that's something that has really, like... I've been trying to decouple this show from all other classic television programs that I like. Uh, in my mind, I've been trying to really establish that this was 1960, a very specific time period, 1961 to 1968. We are watching 1961 only at this point. Please remove all other references to other things at this point be, and put yourself in the mindset of somebody watching CBS in 1961. I do that. I do. I do that basically for the for the fight, or not for the. Andy meters that we do where I'm trying to determine quality 
And then for the FIFO meters, where we're determining how fucking messed up this shit is, then I'm like, 2018 viewer mode. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty fair. I mean, you do have to sort of, like, watch this show with the mindset of, like, they haven't figured out A plots and B plots yet. They're trying to. They almost cracked it. But they haven't figured out how to do a show where the main character isn't on the screen. Uh... Like, they haven't, so they don't have, like, all of the tricks and luxuries of, like, just a few years later. Like, I, I compare it to uh, to MASH a lot because that's my favorite, like, older TV show, which is just as egregious, if not worse, of comparing it to All in the Family. Uh, but, like... Again, same, same time period. Those two shows came on in 1971. Yeah. Yeah, and it's just the difference in, like the tools they had to work with is so stark. Like, they they couldn't do... Like, they can't do montages in this show because... And I don't know if... um, Well, they can, but they don't really know how how much they can use them. Like, they do... They've done, like, one actual montage once, but I don't know if the read... If the viewer could keep up with with that pace of information there's there's one scene that's um that's coming up and it's one of the strangest scenes in a tv show i've ever watched in that andy climbs up a ladder onto a roof says some stuff does some talking and then slowly climbs down the ladder and he is climbing down a ladder for about five seconds and i'm like in my why i would never see a character climb down a ladder in silence on any tv show after 1970 like can you imagine if ron swanson just like if there was on parks and rec just ron swanson climbed down a fucking ladder or you just watched leslie nope walk down some stairs i would like like to i wish that was like an episode of home improvement where you're waiting for like god if if i had been a director of home improvement in 1993 i would have done an entire episode of just tim allen Climbing up and down ladders or sliding underneath cars or whatever and not getting hurt. So you spend the entire episode going, okay, now's the time it's going to happen, right? Now's it. And then, and then 25 minutes later, bye. Bye, Wilson. Tantric home improvement. <laughs> just like, just like edging them. So yeah. <laughs> And then, uh, and and then at the very end, he smashes his hand with a hammer, and just the entire audience goes blind in <laughs> orgasmic joy. Just, oh, it happened! Oh God! Oh, I'm, I'm, what I'm year to, like, is it? <laughs> he just goes and goes and rewires. Like he'll, he'll like be playing with the fuses and rewiring things, and then he goes, "Well, that's fixed." And then Jill will be like. Hey, honey, the garbage disposal's uh, no, not working. So he'll put his hand down the garbage disposal and go, now it's going to happen. Nope. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> Was, the show I would make. I never watched that stupid... I, I, I assumed it was a stupid show. I would just like turn it on and be like, he has three weird blonde sons and there's a guy over a fence. I am not on board with any of this. Was it just him hurting himself? Is that, was it just Tim Allen doing shitty shtick and then that weird grunt intro and that was the show? It was, I mean, after we finish Andy Griffith, we might have to do Home Improvement, but it's, uh, it was like, you will have to make me watch that show at fucking gunpoint before I watch a Tim Allen show. Like, maybe before Last Man Standing got revived, maybe I would have been on board. Absolutely not. I will watch 
Like, get a court order and maybe I'll watch Home Improvement with you. Home Improvement is a really, really weird show, and it's very weird that Tim Allen went the direction he did, because, like, the entire point of Home Improvement is that, like, Tim's commitment to, like, traditional masculine ideals constantly, A, gets him hurt, and B, hurts his relationships, and then every single week, he goes to his, like, liberal, NPR-listening, very sensitive, possibly gay neighbor for advice, and... He misunderstands the advice, but it kind of gets through, and that solves the problem by, like, kind of de- taking a step back and, like, slowing his masculinity role a little bit. That's every single week of Home Improvement. It's such a weird fucking show. I mean, I think it's it's similar to, like, what happened with Roseanne, where, like, Roseanne was a relatively, like, Roseanne was pro-union back in the day. Like Ro- and the, the clip sort of... of Roseanne like shit talking her state representative is one of my favorite TV show scenes of all time, right? Where she's just like, "So uh, who's gonna pay for these businesses to come there?" And it's like through tax cuts. Well, are we gonna get jobs? Are they gonna be get union jobs? Uh, no, because that's how we're gonna get the businesses to show up. And like Roseanne just goes off on this dude. It's one of my favorite clips of all time. Yeah, I mean, even like, there's a lot of these examples like. Uh, this is an embarrassing side thing. I used to read a shitload of Dilbert. I have in my, uh, like, on my, my bookshelf, like, three Dilbert books that I read when I was 14. Because Dilbert I was used a, to be good! I was a super cool teenager who had sex all the time, so I read a <laughs> lot of Dilbert. <laughs> uh, but fucking, like, and Dilbert, like, I, I, I went back and thumped back. Dilbert back in the day was anti-gun... Uh, was like he like there's a thing where Dogbird is like anyone who wants to own a gun shouldn't be allowed to. He was pro union. Uh, he thought that all businesses were inherently run by morons. That being promoted to a manager made you dumber. Like the whole thing was like, and like Dilbert back in the day was anti capitalism, and now he's a Trump supporter. I think it's just like because he these got people, rich. <laughs> Yeah, well, is it that they got rich or that they got old? Because Tim Allen, I would attribute it to, that man did a whole mess of cocaine. And I think, like, he got older and just the effects of that just sort of, like, deteriorated his brain. I I mean, I think in the case of Dilbert, it's that he got rich doing what honestly is not a very hard freaking job. Like, I love nothing, nothing against cartoonists. And I think they're, they're... I love newspaper comic strips, but it's not a hard job. And Dilbert in particular isn't a hard strip because the art has not improved in 25 years. So he got very wealthy doing something that was really simple. And people who have money seem to think that they're just inherently good at getting money. Um, yeah. We're, we're kind of on a tangent here. Do we want to, I mean, all this stuff I do think harkens back to the Andy Griffith show. Uh, but do you want to you want to ask another question? This is a good ass tangent, so let's not edit it out. Um, but uh, yeah, let's let's uh, let's circle back to the uh, to one of the uh, conversation topics. Was it? Oh, actually, do you want to talk about Frank Tarloff now? Yeah, this is yours. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so... Okay. So uh, we we sort of had this discovery last week uh, that. David Adler, who we have so far known as the horny writer, because uh, his episodes are full of the most beautiful 
actors and actresses and also a lot of implied fucking. Like, he manages to work him into all of his scripts. David Adler is not his real name. His name is Frank Tarlov. And the reason for that is McCarthyism got him. David Tarlov was an immigrant. He came to uh, he came to America and then came to Hollywood, became a television writer. Before he wrote The Andy Griffith Show, he was just sort of writing... He, he wrote for the, the Dick Van Dyke Show. Before that, he wrote The Real McCoys, The Donna Reed Show. He was a good writer, but he sort of, like, was, was very, like... Like, he, he was just one of those, like, working writers who's just sort of in the trenches of TV, just cranking out episodes. And uh, he went to one communist meeting, uh, which he has gone back and said, it was extremely boring, and I feel like nothing productive happened from it. And I feel like his last name of Tarlov, which sounds vaguely foreign, was a big contributor in, uh, in McCarthyism grabbing him. Someone came to his writing office one day uh, and summoned him to testify before the, how is it the House of Un-American Activities? Yeah, House, QAC, House Un-American Activities Commission. The House of Un-American Activities Commission, he was called upon to testify. He got there, and he was named a hostile witness. He took the fifth on every single question and refused to name names. Which landed you in jail at that time. No, uh, it landed him on a blacklist. Because he, he agreed to testify, he was a hostile witness. He didn't, he didn't participate. He wasn't uh, held he, in contempt or anything? Nope. He, I mean, okay. he took the fifth. He he, okay. he exercised his rights. Okay. Um, he, he, but, it wasn't like a Dalton Trumbo situation where he actually served jail time. Nope, nope. Uh, but before he even... Before he even co- like testified, before he even went before the committee, he was blacklisted. The second the, uh, the FBI agent walked out of his office, he got a call from his agency that they were dropping him. And people stopped taking his calls. No one in Hollywood would go to his house because they thought that if they associated with him, they would also be blacklisted. They didn't want to be associated with someone who had the mark on them. And he got out, and after he had refused to provide any information or name names, he was double uh, double blacklisted. He started, and what he did start to do was uh, he still found work specifically through uh ghost writing for other writers which was a a common a common practice for blacklisted writers he would give writers scripts they would pay him they would uh they would put it on tv they would get the credit and he also started writing under david adler which had a little bit of success do they they uh uh is, is that a nom de plume yeah 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 Pseudonym the nom, nom de, de plume, plume kind of worked uh but he, uh, it was suggested by one of his friends that he moved to England, where Frank Tarloff, or at this point David Idler, was idolized as a hero. And he considers this the best period of his life. This is how he wrote The Andy Griffith Show, as David Adler from England. Uh, so, this was, so this man sort of had his life completely ruined by McCarthyism, managed to put the pieces together by fleeing America. But then the, the awesome part is... He wrote Father Goose, a Cary Grant movie that uh, that he won an Oscar for. So he got to come back triumphant, and he got the uh, he got the standing ovation that a lot of writers were being denied at that point. Because basically, there were if you the Oscars were just full of protests, like directors who had named names were uh, uh, would 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 win an Oscar, and no one would clap, and there would be protests outside at the idea of them being allowed to attend the Oscars. So he sort of got to come back with his head high. 
one of the one of the great lines is uh, from his obituary. His wife was talking about him, and she was like, "Oh, we don't really think it was that exceptional that he refused to name names. I mean, if he had, I would have left him. The only reason that we're together right now is because he refused to name names. So it's not really, it's not really a heroic thing. He just didn't want he just didn't want me to divorce him. Uh, which is is such a like a so fucking brutal that it's kind of awesome but okay so the question about frank tarloff is uh like now that we now that we know what we know and we've we've i think we've noticed a lot of like weird idiosyncrasies and sort of stories that take an abrupt uh about face at the last five minutes how do you think mccarthyism the fact that this wolf was sort of circling hollywood throughout throughout the entire duration of this show or the entire duration of this season how do you think that really impacted what we're watching here? Do you think like any of the stuff we've been sort of befuddled by, we might be able to attribute to the fact that Joseph McCarthy was was ready to just sort of drag a writer off at any given moment? Yeah, I mean, we commented on it briefly in the last episode where we talked about uh, the consolidation of power uh, and like Barney Fife's like almost fascistic reign, not, not completely fascistic reign, which was written by yeah. David Adler. Uh, and I, I asked, I said something like, is this David Adler's on the waterfront? And it kind of is because like he's talking about this, this massive issue. Uh, I think that in order for it to have a happy ending, obviously he was forced to like pull back at the last minute. And that's what's really weird about that episode is it does feel like it was in a dive bomb and then like they have to pull up like at the last second. Uh, actually, a lot of these episodes kind of feel that way. I kind of wonder old if, Alcohol like, and old lace, I feel like, might qualify for that. I, I, a lot of these episodes feel like they're going one way, and it's a really, it's a kind of a darker, more interesting way. Uh, and then, like, at the last minute, kind of pulls out. And I feel like that's probably, like, the brass at CBS going, yeah, you can't do this. Uh, and at the same time, like, you know, David Adler's got to eat, right? So, yeah. This is him, like, doing what he's got to do. Uh, and being a little bit um, nonconformist, uh, you know, a little subversive, but it's still the fucking Andy Griffith show. Uh, so I do think that some of these, like, authoritarian undertones that we have picked up on uh, and been, like, a little frightened by, maybe at least partially they're intentional like i'm I'm wondering as, as i did before at the beginning i'm wondering if like everyone picked up the wrong lessons from this if mm-hmm. this, this these early seasons feel like a show at war with itself uh and it's very interesting to watch from that perspective do you think maybe what it might be is they were trying to write a tv show within the confines of mccarthyism but a sh- but that show isn't funny, so they were constantly trying to like to sort of stay in this sandbox and figure out a way to be as subversive as you need to be to make a good TV show. Like I they were trying so. to play with the toys they had. I think so. Uh, I think also some of the shows that we've talked about that predated this, um, Father Knows Best, the Dick Dick Van Dyke show comes out at the same time. Uh, back to that whole uh, rural versus urban thing. Uh, those were shows about the suburbs. Those are shows about mm-hmm. like families that like had a little money and they had this big house and they had they had actual neighbors. 
Whereas the Andy Griffith show is like set in a rural area, but as you just pointed out, written by dudes in Los Angeles and London. Uh, Mayberry yeah. itself exists on a 40 acre lot in CBS Studios. And sometimes you'll actually see Mayberry in movies uh, around that time period too, because they reuse the set all the time. Well, Mayberry Goes Hollywood is meta as fuck. It's incredibly meta. Uh, is that, I think that's an, that's an Adler episode. No, no, it's not good, so it's not an Adler. No, 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 that's the guy that got fired. Uh, that's oh, the yeah, guy yeah. that did Mayberry on record, too. Yeah, the same episode twice, and they both suck. Um, yeah. To answer your question, there's a lot of factors going on there, right? It's how like dudes in Los Angeles and London imagine um, this the South, which in the news you're kind of seeing is like a little backwards and repressive, almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy and using the, basically the tools of stereotypes, which is what they've got also trying to play around with, uh, this subversion of McCarthyism. There's so much Mm -hmm. interesting shit happening when you get into this. It makes the show much more interesting to watch and like makes me really like it. But not for, like you pointed out at the beginning, not for the reasons why the Andy Griffith Show wants me to like it, and not for the reasons why everyone else loves the Andy Griffith Show. Yeah, no, the the fact that it, it it's like sort of the way that, like, Adventure Time and a lot of kids shows are are really fun to watch, because, like, you're seeing them, like, like within these, these limited confines, and they have to be more creative to work with to work with what they have like they can't they can't get really dark they can't get really complex but they still have to tell good stories it's yeah it's why like adventure time and steven universe are really appealing it's sort of like you you appreciate this more because you realize that they're sort of they're painting with a really limited palette and they're it makes it more impressive that they're telling functional stories at all have you learned anything about yourself while watching this like has the Andy Griffith Show taught you any lessons about Dan? <laughs> uh, I think there's been a there's been points in the show where I've gotten really angry, and I've been surprised by uh by what I've gotten really upset with. And there's been stuff that I've sort of like that hasn't like been angry, but there, like there was that one moment in um uh Andy the Matchmaker where Andy does stupid romantic shit and I got really embarrassed by it just because I was like like it, they sort of like dug up a couple like deep shames that just from watching the show but I guess the, the biggest thing is like last episode you edited out a like a, a a long just rant I went on about just being furious about these people in jail and just like being confined for a thing that they know is bullshit and laughing it off like well, well, time out. I I edited that out at your request. Yeah, you, no, no, no. Yeah, you edited that out very justifiably because it was incomprehensible. I I like I I requested you you edit that out because I was just like frothing at the mouth and just like sputtering, just 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 like I, I was just like a, a yard sprinkler of rage for like five minutes on the episode that was com- would have been completely unlistenable, but. I think this show makes me really, really angry at times, and I've been really surprised at like where my nerves are. I actually don't know what I've what I've learned about myself from that. Just I thought I was sort of a very calm person politically. Um, I thought I had like a very like like tempered view of like of politics and uh, and and sort of anti authoritarianism. But 
Barney Fife just makes me so fucking angry. <laughs> just it's this and it's it's this combination of like of authoritarianism and entitlement and deep unremarkability. He, and I think he that's, is he is the mediocre white man. The, yes, the, and that I think, keeps failing upwards and like it, again in 2018 that character doesn't fly. That character pisses you off. Um, it's yeah. I'm watching Silicon Valley right now. Uh, I mean, I've seen it all before, but now I'm watching it like all in a row, and that's it's almost sort of the same thing. Richard Hendricks sucks. He's terrible. He's not really that good at anything. He's a prick, but he keeps failing upwards, even though even when he should be like justifiably punished. Uh, and, and, and it's like it's really upsetting because like I see myself in that character. Like Barney Fife is upsetting, not because like he's this this alien other, but like I I I, I don't know. I see my own like like fear of unremarkability, but being coddled for it. Like it's it's it's. I think as a as a a cis straight white dude, I am sort of like Barney Fife is upsetting because he's so familiar and he's like. He's a person I could so easily be. Like, if I let my guard down... He's triggering your imposter syndrome, is what you're saying. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's... I think you have to constantly have a level of introspection. Um, otherwise, you slide into this, um, the worst version of yourself. And I think Barney Fife is like, he is the monster at the bottom of that hill. He is... If I if I just stopped paying attention for uh to the way I am or the way I think for a year, I think I could be Barney Fife just with that like, just waving around any sort of uh phallus of authority to make up for my extremely visible insecurities. A friend of mine who actually has watched most of the Andy Griffith Show, uh, told me that by the end of this, we're gonna realize Barney was not the real enemy. The enemy was Floyd all along. And I saw my first glimpse of that in Mayberry on Record when Floyd essentially says, what about those of us who have no talent? What about Floyd who had nothing to do with this? How can Floyd profit? When will the unremarkable, untalented, and lazy get their due? When, when will it be Floyd's time to make money for doing nothing whatsoever? Is there no justice in this world? Uh, I'm going to say Floyd's money problems have been a focal point of three episodes of this show so far. I mean, the coming down the pike is, uh, I almost said Brian Gumble. Uh, Gomer Pyle is coming down the pike of this show. And just from everything I've seen, like every every hint I've gotten of the character and every looking at his face, I am bracing myself to hate Gomer Pyle. He seems like he's going to be a deeply annoying character. We're definitely going to have to watch Full Metal Jacket uh, to prepare for that, Private Pyle. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm perpetually down to watch Full Metal Jacket. Um, I think, like, to your to your point about being like, confused how much of this stuff sets you off. Um, yeah. I just, like, I... A trigger point for me, like, a pressure point, is anything dealing with the generation gap and the entitlement of a generation. Uh, so, and anybody, like, you know, generalizing millennials versus uh, baby boomers, that entire thing is, like, a real hair trigger for me. 
Uh, and so because of that, as we've pointed out numerous times, watching this is kind of the genesis of those. That's why this gets under my skin. It's kind of like, let's talk about some comic strips again. Uh, you ever read the comic strip Dustin? No. Okay, so Dustin will infuriate you, and it pisses me off every single time. Especially because the art is really, really good, but the writing is a barely, like, barely veiled political comic about... So the comic is about a, like, 22-year-old English major uh, who moves back in with his parents. And it's written by, like, a 55-year-old, so you can imagine what this is. So, like, the entire strip is Dustin, this pretty, like, nice, likable guy who is trying real hard to get his shit together... Uh, and you constantly see him going on, like, like working as a substitute teacher or going to temp jobs or whatever. Uh, and he's constantly working to, like, maybe maybe meet a girl, maybe find something. And the strip keeps showing you him trying and failing. But his father, Ed Kudlick, uh, just shits all over him. And the rest of the, the entire strip is like, haha, look at this lazy, dumb fucker who doesn't work, even though we see him working all the time. Uh, Christ, and, and like the whole strip is about like this this like forty this fifty something bald ass lawyer. He's like a lawyer, and his wife is a radio talk show host. Uh, just shitting on his son, who is in probably not a great place right now. It's like it's like emotional abuse. The comic strip it has taken that that <laughs> position away from for better or for worse, and now it's that. And it's also like it's really frustrating because the artwork is really really good so you can be sometimes i'll play a game like how long do you think it took this artist to draw this panel versus how long did it took the fucking writer to write this bullshit hacky joke uh and you can hear me getting angry about it as i talk about it uh, i hate this strip so much and i read it every single day um and fuck <laughs> and andy the andy griffith show pushes that button for me and I want it not to. I want it very much not to. Because I keep being told by people, every time I say something, they're like, you know, Andy Griffith, really, he stood for things that were different. And I'm like, maybe later he did, but right now he hasn't. Really. I mean, there is, I, I think, a reoccurring uh, like gripe we've had with this show is just sort of like, I mean, I, we're both already pretty keyed up about the, like, millennials suck thing. And it's sort of, this has been, like, sort of really exacerbating that. And we've just watched episode after episode of Andy Griffith's show, just like, You! This is you! All the stuff that you guys accuse us of! This is just you guys! This is where you come from! Like, how dare you watch the Andy Griffith show and then accuse us of being snowflakes? Like, that has been one of our most reoccurring freakouts. The the thing that gets, like repeated the most often that i see like is that one clip that we haven't run into yet about andy talking about why he doesn't carry a gun he doesn't carry a gun because if you carry a gun people don't respect the man they fear the gun uh and so far other than that i've seen nothing (laughs) i don't really believe that uh that explanation at least not for season one i think that was basically like a retcon that they they're going to do I, bu- I really believe that it's like there's an old trope of con men don't carry guns. Like that's that's uh, that's they talk old... their way out of it. Yeah, yeah, no, like because because if a con man carries a gun, then there's no tension in one in in any scene that he's doing a con because at any moment it'll be like, oh, this con isn't going good. All right, here's the gun. Like 
I, I think it was literally just a con men don't carry guns thing. You say you got one more. Let's let's do one more conversation topic because I'm like I feel like I feel like this is my therapy session. And, yeah, and I have I have unburdened myself. Um, no, no, we really needed this. You can hear in the last episode we both broke. Like yeah. you were defeated by the end of the last episode, and I was incoherent. Uh, like we we needed this very bad, especially because we're doing. Andy, the marriage counselor after this, and the Christmas episode, both of which are going to require a lot of both both us being calm and also screaming. Uh, so we needed to I, I, unburden ourselves a little bit. Spoiler alert, though, I love that Christmas episode. That is like a genuine great half hour of television. It like, really is. It, it, and it perfectly, it simultaneously is a great Christmas episode with all of the crazy bullshit that you would expect from the Andy Griffith show. Yeah, absolutely. It is, yeah. it is like probably where I would direct people first if they wanted to watch the Andy Griffith show. Uh, we could talk about toxic masculinity on this. We did. I mean, you, you, we did that a little bit with Home Improvement, but uh... that's true. I, I was thinking just like the fact that this show, this isn't like a, a, a an aggressively masculine show, is it? Like. None of the, like, Andy Griffith isn't, like, like, he, he, he threatens to kick people's asses less than Hank Hill. There's not really a lot of, like, like, it, would you say that, it, that it, it, it's boiling over with, with toxic masculinity, or it's sort of only, like, simmering with it? Like, I mean, you know what? there are a lot of the, the insecurities on display. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're gonna hit the episode where Andy gets jealous of the new doctor in town. Um, like, but but the thing is, Andy isn't a caveman. You know, he's not literally Fred Flintstone. It, he's not Ralph Cramden. This isn't the Honeymooners. Um, he there there are some weird fucking gender politics anytime Ellie's involved. Uh, I would say, but Andy more than anything doesn't seem to like conflict he's uh sort of a pacifist he would much rather talk things out uh than really like show off his bravado and like like all of the uh real like masculine energy to like talk again barney fife barney fife is kind of the like proto incel i would say even though he's getting getting laid constantly apparently but yeah he just like He's just such a small, frail little dude, and wants to be a big man so badly, and that's supposedly where the joke comes from. The joke is that this small, tiny, and Don Knotts sells it. Like, let's let's give credit to where it's due. Don Knotts is a, a great actor. Andy Griffith is doing some great acting. Uh, once again, got to point out, I fucking love the music of the Andy Griffith show. It's so good. Mm-hmm. Um, giving credit where it's due, but like that's kind of the joke behind behind uh Dar- or Barney Fife is that he's a weak tiny little dude he's like a chihuahua that wants to be a, a rottweiler uh, yeah and again like 2018 that's not that funny because those dudes kill people all the yeah. time uh, those dudes kill people and run our federal government now and and but but and like it was like this um this disease that we're currently like ravaged by 
and the Andy Griffith show just has it like in a petri dish and they're like Haha, check out this little uh, check out do, look what happens when an extremely like uh, a feet man thinks that he's uh, he's tough and authoritative this is funny isn't it i hope i don't drop this whoa and then like the the pathogen spreads throughout america yeah yeah and it's, yeah. you know i i wonder if like andy griffith got this like reputation as america's dad basically in comparison to the foil that is Barney Fife. Um, yeah. That dynamic is very good, because we've seen so far that Handy Griffiths absolutely sucks at parenting, um, but mm-hmm. he's miles better than Uncle Barney would have been, right? <laughs> well, he's he is very bad at parenting Opie, his actual child. He's a pretty good parent to Barney. That's uh, true. <laughs> he teaches Barney a lot of lessons, uh he takes care of his feelings he's extremely protective he's he's a great dad to this fucking psychopath goon that hangs around him terrible father to his child you know i will say there's probably like a good chunk here about um about friendships like i'm not gonna say that barney and andy have a healthy friendship because andy is an enabler um yeah barney's worst tendencies but yeah, there's something that I do kind of admire about that, like, protective nature that Barney has over his friend and his cousin. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it is, it is like, there is a really, like, nice, like, like really, at times, touching camaraderie where, like, like, for, for, like, one man's enabling is another man's accepting your friend's flaws and loving him beyond it like there there's that one part where um where barney has cut his finger in those gossiping men and he's like he's like complaining about it and andy can't even see the cut and he's still like oh yeah yeah i think it's gonna be okay it like doesn't like give him shit and it's like it's genuinely a touching moment but like through the other lens it's like you are humoring your friends uh hypochondria yeah like it's it's sort of a, a glass half full glass half empty like i think i think it definitely helps that uh andy griffith and don knotts were in real life best friends uh till the end of their lives you know what it sort of um it actually sort of reminds me of like a different barney uh barney from how i met your mother like i was gonna say rubble because we've already mentioned <laughs> we've already mentioned Fred Flintstone. <laughs> but no, Barty Rubble is abusive. Uh he steals his friend's cereal. Uh he, he, like, <laughs> he, Barney, he puts a, on elaborate disguises to get his he, friend's food. Go to the store. Or like like Fred should just in one episode be like, Do you need to borrow money? Like they what's have going the same on? job. By the way, by the way, uh if you ever want to like watch a good like male friendship dynamic uh like movie 1994's The Flintstones great fucking like yeah. test of male friendship also Hall of Fame casting Rick Moranis and John Goodman as Barney and Fred Hall of Fame casting director holy shit that's i mean to be fair you can just throw Rick Moranis at any role and he'll crush it like he was sort of the cheat code of Hollywood when he was in it. Uh, yeah, go on. Uh, uh, Barney, but, Barney Stinson, uh, How I Met Your Stinson. Mother. Stinson. But, like, like the way that Barney Fife is the way um, enablers, like, see corrupt cops, Barney 
Stinson is the way that enablers see like the her- the serial harasser or the serial even the the pickup rapist. artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the like, rapist. Yeah. Barty Fife gets a has a sex with a lot of women by tricking them. One of Stinson, one, Stinson, one, not Fife. Oh god, yeah. But uh, Barney Stinson has sex with a lot of women by tricking them. Like, there's one list he runs through where he uh, he pretends to be a completely different gender than he is so that he can have sex with a lesbian. Uh, there's one where he pretends to be black uh, so that he can have sex with a black woman for some reason. At one point, he admits to having sold a woman for a car. Uh, he gets a woman arrested because he... Uh, he sleeps with her in a house that isn't his, uh, and then bails, and then the original family comes home and has her arrested. Like, Barney Fife, you could argue, when your entire sex life is based off of deceit, uh, you could, you could argue that person's a serial rapist, but that, that aside, the, the show sort of shows, like, like, oh, well, he's just this way because he had a really traumatic childhood, and, He's ultimately a good guy, and you just sort of have to look past his rough edges and his rough flaws. And it's like, that is the way that a group of, like, frat guys sees their friend who gropes the unconscious girl at a party. Like, like, oh, he mov- he steps over the line sometimes, but, but you know, D- Douglas is a good dude. Uh, you know, he just has some issues. You know what's funny about that? Think about the, uh, think about what we talked about with the Stranger in Town episode, where, like, literally all the guy has to say is, I was in the war, that's why I was weird, and everyone just forgives everything, including his, like, weird trespassing of the woman that he never met before. Uh, Yeah! And that's why, like, Barney's PTSD, Barney Fife, not Barney Stinson, that's why Barney Fife's war PTSD would have been such a good, like, explanation for why he is the way he is. Yeah, I think, I, I really, now that I'm thinking about it, I think the show's biggest crime is um the thing that really makes it upsetting at times is enablement and normalization. Yeah. It takes these things that aren't okay and it's not that it endorses them. It'll 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 say that uh that these things are fucked up. Uh but it also treats them as normal acceptable failings. Especially like, the marriage counselor episode that we're going to get into next week. Oh, Especially Christ. that one. We're we're building up for that so much. I need like it's gonna be a fucking I, letdown when people actually hear it. I mean, no, we need. I need like like two mulligans for uh for the marriage counselor just because that show so aggressively normalizes something so shitty and terrible that I'm I'm really worried that it's like its enablement is going to spread to me. And I'll accidentally, in making fun of the show, also normalize abuse. And I'm, I'm, I'm scared shitless. I feel like maybe we need to get like a stand-in for me. I don't think I should be entrusted with this upcoming responsibility. You know, like, you could just not talk. Is that has that been an option the entire time? I'm, I guess. I mean, otherwise it's just me talking. So maybe not. I could just Ed McMahon it and just like as you and uh, and our our guest talk, just sort of be like, ha ha, that's accurate. Oh, so true. Oh, ho, ho, ho. like just sort of laugh in the background. All right. I think I'm going to say that we've, we've decompressed enough. Uh, yeah. Thank you to thank you to the listeners for uh, bearing with us on this one. I hope that you found this as educational 
and informative and therapeutic as we did. Um, remember, remember Frank Tarloff. I feel like that's our biggest contribution is the name Frank Tarloff has been forgotten and he fucking ruled. And it is a shame that that Oscar winner has been just lost to the annals of history. Oh, you know what? And if you want to listen to a good re- a good recap of the McCarthy era that I think also mentions Tarloff, listen to the McCarthy episodes. I think it's like eight or ten of them written by Karina Longworth uh, of Hell the yeah. podcast. You must remember this. She does a very in-depth coverage of like classic Hollywood and... Uh, and the McCarthy era. So that's definitely worth listening to if you want to learn more about that. Also, the film Trumbo was, you know, Hollywoodized, but a pretty good, pretty good adaptation. Mm. Uh, real good Brian Cranston role in that. So though, that's my recommendation, I suppose. Now real- that we've done all this real shit, uh, hopefully we- that we can get back to just making jokes about Barney Fife's dick and shit. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. yeah. Uh, so real quick, uh, stuff normal stuff please thank you for everyone who's subscribed or left a review or a rating so far you know remember those are the things that are the most helpful for us uh showing up in searches and getting into other people's ears and you know if you like what we're doing here share it share it with your friends and your family uh we'd really appreciate that and drop us a line you can contact us on twitter we are at break mayberry uh facebook.com slash breaking mayberry you can email us breakingmayberry at gmail.com and we'll read your stuff on the on the air uh if you want to comment tell us about your favorite andy griffith show episode tell us about you know how you feel about what we're saying i i hope that or this hurt our feelings yeah hurt our feelings i hope that this generate especially this episode we just recorded generate some real conversation i'd love to hear some feedback from what you're uh from what people are saying um or from what you think about what we're saying you can follow me on the internet oh real quick um our theme song, our music is done by Max Ludwig, who you can follow on Twitter at Sleep Talkie. Uh, our artwork is the wonderful Emily Christina. Uh, you can follow her on Instagram at Scribble Emily. Uh, that's down in the uh, notes. You can check that out. Follow me on the internet. I am on Twitter at Schneid Remarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D Remarks. I'm at the Luds. Two Ds. Uh... Follow Ron Howard at Real Ron Howard. And this episode, I'm not going to do a like hashtag tweet at Ron Howard. We'll save that for the next time. Um, just, you know, tweet at Ron Howard. Just you guys talk, know the drill. You know, you know how this goes. Uh, so thanks for bearing with us on this one. We really needed it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I feel so much better. Yeah, I really do. Uh, we'll be back to making Barney Fife dick jokes and yelling manhunt at the top of our lungs next week. Uh, but until then, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all down at the fishing hole. Uh, bup, bup, bup.